Welcome to Restoring Memory, a COVID calls exploration of the first two COVID years. My name is Scott Gabriel Doles. I'm a historian of disasters. And since March 16th, 2020, I've been the host of COVID Calls, a daily discussion of the pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. This is episode 480, March 16th, 2022. And we'll be talking about India in the COVID-19 pandemic. And I wanna bring my guests on right away, not strangers to COVID Calls. Let me introduce them to you. Aksa Sheikh is Associate Professor of Community Medicine at Jamia Hamdard University in Delhi. She is India's first trans woman nodal officer of COVID vaccination in the COVID vaccination center. Sonali Vaid is a physician and public health specialist. She's the founder of Incluve Labs, an organization working to improve the quality of healthcare and making care more humane. And I'm thrilled to have both of my guests back on COVID calls. Sonali and Aksa, so good to see you. Thank you, wonderful to be here. So I wanna catch up with you uh, both. It's been a little while since I've had you on COVID calls. And uh, Sonali, let me start with you just to find out how you've been doing since the last time we talked, where you are right now, what the pandemic looks like. So last time we talked, I was in Himachal, which is a northern hilly uh, state in India. Um, and uh, right now I'm in Delhi, which is the capital, and things are very different. So uh, I, I'm forgetting the month in which we talked, but... Uh, um, you know, now with vaccines. And uh, so at that time, so India went through the Delta wave. Uh, it was quite, uh, quite exhausting and, you know, quite, uh, quite a difficult time. Um, I myself had COVID in January. So I got Omicron. Uh, this was while I was in Himachal. Uh, so since I've had COVID personally, uh, this was my first uh, instance of getting COVID. Uh, Personally, I've become quite relaxed. Um, it was quite a bad spell, uh, terrible sore throat, fever, uh, but of course, uh, everything else was okay and I recovered in about eight, eight days. Um, so yeah, right now in Delhi, um, India is still seeing some COVID cases, but uh, uh, nowhere near the crisis that we were in last year. We talked on July 5th, 2021. And in COVID time, that's like 10 years ago now, it seems like. Um, and that was such a terrible moment in the pandemic for India. I'm glad you're doing better. I'm sorry that you got sick. I'm glad I got sick after getting vaccinated. So, uh, right. so, yeah, so it was okay. Aksa, we talked... Uh, when back and looked, we talked a little more recently than that on October 4th of 2021. So how have you been since our last visit? Yeah, so uh, same here. I also um, happened to get COVID in Jan this year. And uh, this was my second time. Um, and uh, things um, were different this time. Uh, one as compared to last time when I was uh, in a hospital setting, um, admitted for 10 days. This time I was in home isolation for seven days 
but completely alone and on my own since my family was not here and uh, also as you know sonali mentioned that um, a terrible sore throat you know which so though omicron was considered to be clinically milder um, i think it was no less a suffering uh, you know as compared to the um, first wave but then there was less of anxiety there was uh, you know kind of a reassurance um, as sonali mentioned getting it after vaccinated and in my case you know getting it after having had it once had its own advantage and uh, i had already uh, received unofficially booster doses so um, you know um, uh, in spite of that getting covid was like a shocker uh, but then that happened um, also um, in between the two uh, covid waves and you know um, sets of infections that i personally had i went through a lot of uh, uh, mental difficulties illness mental illness in terms of depression insomnia i also was diagnosed with migraine so a lot of things uh, that we don't speak of you know in terms of post covid in terms of long covid um, was a personal experience in terms of uh, uh, you know these things which suddenly propped up from nowhere um, so um, yeah that was um, an experience uh, if i may say so uh okay i'm glad that you're all right uh i'm sorry that you had it and twice i mean i guess given the clinical setting that you're in and the the transmissibility of omicron we shouldn't be too surprised um does that make your work harder when you're a vaccine advocate when you're running a vaccine clinic and you uh, and you also get it though you're vaccinated i mean this is a big problem in the united states with vaccine skepticism and anti-vax people say look people are getting these vaccinations and still getting omicron why would i bother what do you say to that so uh, i remember just a few days before i was diagnosed the second time with covid i was telling this to my co faculty members that you know i had got four shots of covid vaccine so two of covaxin and two of covishield and then i also had uh, one previous set of infection and i was like that's like five times getting exposed to the antigen and in spite of that you know if i get uh, infection then that will shake my confidence in the vaccines and that happened you know so to be very honest it did shake my confidence in the vaccines as to whether vaccines can really prevent um, infection but then uh, at the same time you know coming out of this disease in the form of um, uh, symptoms which were relatively milder and which didn't affect oxygen saturation didn't lead to hospitalization and overall we saw how the covid wave settled down very quickly and without much mortality in india so that also uh, you know kind of reassured us that vaccination may help uh, in decreasing hospitalizations and uh, mortality so yeah it was it was a test of faith uh, you know that i went through um I, we're very anxious here in south korea because we're at a in the peak uh, omicron wave here and and I'd like a, several countries that are highly vaccinated it's kind of come in these plateaus like it it rises and then it settles a few days and everybody says okay and then it's it's kept going up and we're just hoping that it follows the trend that you described which is that it was it may be a lot of cases but hopefully and even maybe some hospitalizations among vulnerable populations but um that that vaccination rate is actually going to make a difference in the in the long run Let me just remind folks that you're listening to COVID calls and I'm talking to Aksha Sheikh and Sanali Bey today about COVID in India. I want to 
ask a, a kind of a big question here and Sonali, let me ask you first about this. Um, so uh, the numbers uh, officially listed by the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center, 516,072 deaths for India. That's the official number that's given. Uh, there's a lot of discourse around whether or not that's an undercount and how much of an undercount that is. But even if we had what you might consider an accurate number, it might not fully express to us what the pandemic has meant to India. So I want to just give you kind of a big, a big question and, and ask you, how has this pandemic shaped Indian life? So Scott, even just having this conversation seems a little surreal. Um, I think most of us have not had the time to process what we've been through. And many people are not even thinking about the need to process it. I just met with another friend who works in public health on the weekend. We went for a walk and we're sitting on a bench and he's like, I don't think people are processing it, especially people who worked at the front line, clinicians, healthcare workers, community workers. Um, people have just moved on. Uh, I'm meeting friends who are clinicians and everything's normal. They're talking about their normal uh, projects and other activities. And there's been absolutely no space for processing and healing, let alone talking about those who've had personal tragedies. So, uh, you know, as um, you know, as healthcare workers, as the even the broader public, there has been uh, where is our memorial uh, to the lives that have been lost, you know, not talking about the political uh, angle to the whole issue, but just a space to grieve and to process and also to, you know, also to, uh, you know, appreciate all the goodness uh, that, you know, happened, um, you know, the, the, the people coming together to support each other, especially in the lockdown in India, uh, where there was this overflowing public volunteerism, you know, literally everybody I know was involved in some way or the other in helping the community. We have really not done either of those things. There is no space for that. Um, how has it changed uh, things? You know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. You know, uh, th there was interest in health and public health. At least now people know what we say when we what we mean when we say public health. So there is a little more awareness. Uh, people are thinking a little bit more of their individual health. Um, I am not. I was initially very optimistic that this would lead to a rethinking uh, of, uh, you know, the kind where we where the country focuses its attention and where the what the public demands for. Um, but uh, we are not seeing that uh, shift on a very on a significant scale. Uh, so I, I think I have moved from optimism to, you know, un accepting that um, uh, not not to expect very dramatic uh, changes. There have been changes in personal lives, like there have been certain shifts, like working from home has become uh, more accepted. Uh, so there have been things like that. Uh, there have, since I was in a rural area, there were a lot of people moving from urban areas into semi-urban and other areas. Mm. So there have been certain shifts in society like that. But as as far as healthcare is concerned. Um, not seeing the kind of revolution that we were actually uh, would have liked to see. 
Aksa, are you feeling the same the same way? I mean, what Sonali is describing um, is a disaster of immense proportions in which people are either so in it that they can't make sense of it or they're trying to get past it and normalize it without discussion. I find that I find that disturbing and I also find it echoes a lot of what seems to be happening in the United States, honestly. Yeah, I, I um, uh, completely, uh, you know, agree with Sonali on this and reflecting on how the Indian society has responded, I think public memory is really, really short lived. So we had seen some very disturbing scenes during the second wave of the COVID when people were squandering for oxygen cylinders, medicines, hospital beds. There were scenes of mass cremations, burials along the banks of rivers, and some, uh, you know, uh, people who could not even get a proper burial or cremation. Um, but in spite of that, you know, when we look at what happened just one year back, it's not even one year, you know, things have changed so dramatically as if, uh, you know, it's a defense mechanism at a mass or social level where people are trying to forget about what happened and just move on with their lives. And uh, while Sonali, uh, you know, did slightly mention about the political angle, I would like to talk about it. So we recently had, um, you know, elections to five provinces in India. And um, um, the COVID response was not even an agenda during the elections or how we dealt with it, you know. So um, it's, it's all about how the leaders have been able to project how they responded to the pandemic. And, uh, you know, somehow people's own memory, you know, and how they perceived it is like completely erased. Or there's so much of mass gaslighting, you know, which happens through the political propaganda that often the, uh, you know, people are made to believe that, yeah, they received a good response, um, you know, while completely denying the kind of uh, uh, deaths and devastation which happened not, uh, you know, a very long time back. So it, it initially used to fill me with anger, you know, how people can be so insensitive. But then, um, you know, with more understanding, uh, that anger has dissipated now. And it's, it's a state of uh, pessimism, you know, as Sonali mentioned. So while we are dealing with Ukraine and Russia war and, you know, such, such impactful events which are happening in modern history, but I think people are just carrying on with their lives. You know, in India, Ukraine, Russia, war and the number of lives which are being lost is not even a major talking point nowadays. You know, we are we are more talking on a piece of clothing, for example. Our health budgets have not changed at all. You know, they are stagnant. Our research priorities have not changed. Our research ethics and transparencies have not changed. No heads have rolled, uh, you know, in spite of lakhs of people dying in India, not a single head in the administration has rolled. So the question is, what will it take to really change us? What will it take really to shake us? You know, what will it really, uh, you know, take for what kind of devastation do we need? If not this, then what is the question that I'm left to ponder with? Let me stay with this for just a second. There's so many interesting things in what you're both pointing to here. Is there... I want to know more about the ways that healthcare workers in India find each other and make some sort of common politics, because this is a big struggle in the United States among healthcare workers and nurses. Um, one of the things I think they've learned is that um, 
they might have some capacity to organize it at a local level, but in terms of national organization and demands for safer workplace, for better compensation, for example, they haven't been able to do it. And politicians are happy to say how bad they feel um, for the healthcare workers who've been working these long hours, but it hasn't materialized in, in, in any important way, as you said, Oxen, in terms of research budgets or um, in terms of just more compensation or, or time off. So why, I don't know if that's a fair characterization of what you're dealing with in India, um, so maybe help me out with that, but I'd like to know why, what, are the, what are the structural impediments to actually having some real change right now in India? Yeah. Um, Sonali, you want to go first or should I? Um, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. So I, I think it's, uh, you know, about the kind of culture that we have been having for the past few decades in India with respect to especially the healthcare professionals. So when it comes to the healthcare professionals, I uh, actually consider it to be a marginalized and, um, and an oppressed group, you know, in some extent, because um, one, there is no unionization and unionization is completely discouraged in um, any any kind of healthcare setup in India, whether it's in the government and especially in the private or corporate setup. Um, secondly, uh, you know, in India, there's a history of doctors being beaten up and violence against doctors and public rage against uh, doctors in case there is any kind of a medical uh, failure. And somehow, even in the case of COVID, instead of pinning the responsibility of this kind of a public health disaster epidemic on the governments and for the responses, the rage had been directed towards individual doctors, hospitals, um, you know, for not being able to provide beds or oxygen cylinders, um, whereas it's not actually their responsibility to do that. And we have seen how, um, you know, the medical profession has been looked down upon and how the political narrative can, uh, you know, shape that perspective. So recently when um, post-Ukrainian invasion, when we had the foreign medical graduates, you know, being evacuated and brought down, um, brought back to India, uh, we had this public sentiment which um, kind of, uh, you know, demeaned the medical students who went, who chose to pursue medical education in a foreign country. And they were looked down upon in term through the lens of merit. And, you know, there's this general perception that uh, doctors who study from private colleges or go to uh, the foreign countries for medical education are not really meritorious, you know, or what it takes really to be a doctor. So there is this general perception and attitude. And there's also, you know, it's so much ingrained even within the mindset of doctors that there is no unionization, there is no demanding for their rights, there's no demanding for safer workplaces. And as a result, you know, even in post-COVID, nothing has changed. So many of the healthcare workers, for example, who lost their lives or, um, you know, who lost um, um, a lot of other things, the, the compensation has not been, you know, to the tune of their losses. And especially we are just not talking about the mental health impact on the lives of the uh, healthcare workers. Yes, Sonali. So I want to thank uh, Aksa for bringing up that issue with foreign medical graduates. Uh, hmm. little, because I myself trained in Eastern Europe. I trained in Bulgaria. So the whole incident felt very personal to me. And um, I was quite involved till the students were uh, managed to get out. Um, so, um, so within the medical community, like Aksa said, there is 
you know, some bias, stigma against each other. So there are certain doctors which are considered better than others without any uh, basis. Um, the other big thing I feel is that, you know, uh, in terms of our medical education, there is really very little, unless it is personally motivated, there's very little exposure to um, things outside of medicine, you know, understanding uh, things like equity, human rights, uh, gender issues, literally even the history of your own country, uh, you know, and why we are where we are. Uh, so uh, many people frame, many uh, people in the fraternity frame incorrect ideas about uh, many issues and are not very well informed, um, you know, and a profession like medicine and healthcare, which is so closely linked to society, uh, people who are working in that profession at, and, you know, at a, at scale don't have an understanding of society itself uh, unless it is personally motivated. Uh, so th there is something really lacking in the way uh, we professionalize, uh, you know, in, me in medicine, in nursing, in other professions in India. Um, it's, it's really, really problematic. There have been incidents where um, there have been, there has been, um, you know, in an emergency department, uh, clinicians that are working there have discriminated against Muslims uh, coming for care during COVID. Uh, you know, so um, it's we really, really need to introspect and really need to start uh, broadening uh, the awareness that uh, the medical fraternity has. Um, I'm not sure how we can go about it, but it it's really needs to be done. We cannot keep looking at medicine as a technical, apolitical uh, kind of a field. Let's stay with this a second because AXA is sort of, um, you know, I think said it very well. It's like if, if you're waiting for the big disaster to change society, this is it. I mean, I don't know what else you could you could expect. I mean, I, one hopes you ne we never see anything like this again in our lifetimes. But it, it has shown me um, in the United States the resiliency. People talk a lot about resiliency of individuals in the disaster, but it's shown me the resiliency of some structures that need to be changed, that put too much emphasis on individuals for their health, as you said, too much emphasis on individual doctors and clinics rather than looking at a sort of systemic and a systemic way. And I guess I bring this back to you because both of you are activists. I think that's fair to say. Um, so what actions are you going to take? And I say that with great respect because you both have COVID and Aksa, you've described a sort of long COVID as well. So, I mean, I ask that also knowing that it's a lot to ask just to get up in the morning and do your work. But it also seems like a moment in which activism is absolutely essential more than ever, I think. Yeah. So um, one very important thing which I have realized, you know, is that a superficial band-aid kind of treatment 
um, for these deep ingrained biases which our society has is not going to help. We really need change of uh, you know perspectives, mindsets uh, in terms of how we look at health, how we look at public health, how we demand public health, um, and how especially now um, you know my work is more centered around intersectionality, um, on looking at uh, the intersections of religion, caste, um, ability status, um, and various other kinds of marginalizations. So, um, as uh, you know, Sonali mentioned, and I'm also a medical educator, and my focus, and since you asked what I plan to do or intend to do, is to work with the young medical students. I think it's very difficult to change the mindsets of those who have already passed out of medical college and are practicing right now. And it's very much evident in our WhatsApp groups of medical doctors. You know, when when you you see evidences of, for example, Islamophobia amongst the doctors, you see hate against Dalit or persons from scheduled castes, uh, you know, with doctors writing on the Twitter bio that they come from unreserved castes. So it's it really fills me with a lot of disgust when I see all this. And I also know that if we really want to bring that change and long-term and sustained change, then I need to work with the young minds in the medicine, especially with the young medical graduates and try and catch them young. So um, what we have been trying to do is to work with these medical students um, and, you know, um, kind of uh, initiate dialogues and talks. So um, just, you know, to mention um, yesterday, I was taking a class with the first year medical students who had joined one month back. And another trans student, you know, came to me and said that they identify as trans person. And um, this is the first time that in a medical school, in my medical school, I have a trans student. And, uh, you know, they came to me as a trans teacher. And, you know, that was such a beautiful moment that finally you have some kind of a solidarity, you know, coming and people coming out and being able to identify. So I think we have been able to create that kind of a safe space where students in first month of their medical college can come up to their teacher and say that they identify, you know, as a trans person. So we are looking at, you know, um, how we can um, uh, have a dialogue with these young minds and um, bring in more empathy amongst them. Well, thank you for sharing that story. That's a great story. That's that's the most hopeful I've felt all day. And I appreciate that. <laughs> uh, Sonali, what, what about you? Anything you want to add to this, the problem of activism in a time in which people seem to be either tired or deactivated or, or reactionary? Thank you, Atsa. That was beautiful. Yeah, thank you. Very meaningful. Um, um, for me, it's been a lot of turning inwards. Um, uh, so... Um, um, a lot of uh, trying to figure out my own motivations for activism and how I want to, uh, you know, uh, act in the world. Uh, so a lot of the last two years have been just jumping in whenever there's a crisis. Um, and I'm sort of taking the time to figure out uh, whether that is the best way, um, what happens when the next impulse to jump in strikes uh, you know, so when the Ukraine crisis hit, I was like, Snali, there are enough people out there who are helping the students. 
um, you, you don't have to get involved. So it, for me, it is, uh, it's a little bit of where do I need to invest my energy and where I don't need to invest my energy. Um, so I'm still figuring that out. And I think uh, it's okay uh, to go back and forth into the world and uh, take the time to uh, uh, introspect, um, figure out, uh, you know, your own reserves and framing, uh, and then and then re-enter. Um, and I think uh, some of us probably don't have the time and space to do that, but those of us who can carve that out, I think that is going to be very essential in a world where uh, we do need to, uh, you know, keep doing this type of work. We shouldn't be burning out and making ourselves unhappy. Yeah, I mean, I um, I just want to add to that, you know. Um, so the last two, three years, you know, feel like, feels like we are civilians in war zones, you know, it, it's like there's a constant shelling happening. And uh, initially, um, you were new to the war zone. So you reacted, you know, you tried to do whatever you could, you yeah. fight back. But yeah. now it's like very much important to self preserve yourself, you know. So as Sonali mentioned, um, you know, I, I take a backseat a lot of times now. And, uh, you know, think about self care more and think about it as a marathon and not like a sprint. Uh, because uh, it suddenly feels like, you know, in these last few years, this crisis after crisis after crisis. And um, it's not just from the healthcare perspective. You know, I, as for example, a Muslim woman in India um, who wears hijab, for example, faces so many uh, levels of, uh, you know, um, uh, operations um, and so many opportunities for activism that I have to like pick and choose that today on which topic I'm going to treat whether it will be on the hijab topic, whether it will be on Islamophobia, whether it will be on COVID vaccination, whether it will be on trans issues. So mm. it's like, uh, you know, I, I have to, it's a very overwhelming thing. You know, we also learning how to I, I think we have a, just a slight delay on Oxa's um, signal there. We didn't quite catch the very last part of what you were saying there. We might give it a second just to catch up with us. Oxa, can you hear us? Yeah, yeah. So I was uh, saying that, you know, um, we we um, we are really feeling like we're in a war zone. And um, right. it's like now we, are, we have, uh, you know, realized that it's going to be a reality for the next few years. So we have to learn to live with it. I, I really appreciate you both sort of talking about the pace of things and and the need to take some time um, to take care of yourselves. And, and that's um, that's really important. But I also feel like maybe um, society is not giving you a break. Uh, you know, I mean, your duty as physicians and your, you know, the amount of work you take on as activists, it's it's maybe the pace that you consider resting right now is actually not a resting pace. That <laughs> maybe you've gotten used to something that is yeah. so much work. And and I come back to that because I think it's also, um, and it's a broader question about what's happening in India. Um, 
you know, the pace of, of change and as you described it, one disaster of another, it, it can lead to a kind of societal exhaustion that will manifest itself in, in all sorts of ways. Depression, violence, susceptibility to future pandemics. And, and so I, I come back, um, you know, are these issues that are being discussed either in the healthcare community or maybe at the, at the governmental level? the sort of mental health care, you know, the things that go beyond just the, the, what we think of as, can we get the oxygen into the clinic, but can we also provide people with healthier ways to live, work-life balance, mental health, the things that provide a more sustainable discussion around health? Are, are you hearing any of that? Is there any, you know, discourse around that? Uh, Sunal, you want to answer that? I, I'm not familiar <laughs> with anything. Maybe you are. Uh, <laughs> Uh, definitely no. A resounding no uh, is the answer to that. And I wish we talked about it, uh, especially amongst the healthcare community or in the governments. Um, uh, but, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a situation where the governments have also realized what works with the uh, public, you know. So it's, it's all about populist and um, stuff like giving free rations or 5 kg of rations or giving free, you know, certain things. Um, and the public attention will be diverted, you know, um, um, by some or other thing. So there is no need for politicians to, to, uh, to talk about larger issues like mental health in India or to talk about, you know, social reforms or social restructuring or restructuring of public health. None of that is being uh, really talked about. So just to, uh, you know, give a glimpse into it, the mental health care budget in India still remains the same. You know, mm. though uh, the amount of um, um, the burden of mental illnesses has more than doubled. I'm sure about that. But still, you know, it, it remains stagnant and it goes only to the tertiary uh, care provision in mental health and not to the basic primary uh, health care provision in mental health. So, uh, no, there has been no strict, no restructuring and no talks also of that. And um, that's uh, sad, but that's how things are here. Just a quick reminder that you're listening to COVID calls and I'm talking to Aksa Sheikh and Sonali Vaid uh, today about COVID in India. And we're talking about healthcare workers specifically. Sonali, did you want to add anything to that sort of the broader yeah. issue of mental health? Um, you know, not just mental health. Whenever something comes to the forefront, it goes in the wrong direction. So when we are talking about, you know, we need more doc more health workers, it becomes about number of doctors and uh, number of medical colleges and number of seats instead of talking about a diverse health workforce. And things tend to move towards privatization. Like, okay, we have so many kids studying abroad for medicine. Let's see how we can exploit this opportunity and keep all that money within India. So instead of moving more towards a public-centric system, which is funded by the government and managed by the government, uh, every time there's an issue, it's like, oh, public systems don't work. Let us privatize things. So it's really difficult when you're even raising issues. You have to like hold the train from going into the wrong direction. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there's a kind of a theme running through our conversation that, that you know, if you're expecting a disaster to to be a rupture and provide the grounds for fundamental societal change. I think we've been frustrated by that. And I'm hearing so many similarities in what you're describing to what we see in the United States. 
let me ask another um, uh, another question. Is there some? I, I don't know much about memori memorial culture in India. Uh, in the United States, it takes many different forms, from obituaries in the newspaper to you know, um, obviously cemeteries and uh, private funerals. But also um, in the age of social media, there's been a lot of quite interesting attempts to memorialize and, and not let go um, so easily of the stories of suffering and death among people who want either justice or they want to keep it as a lively issue because they're suffering from long COVID. Or they, people have a number of different reasons that they want to participate in memorialization. Can we talk a little bit about the what you're seeing in India along those those lines, the potential for memory as a tool to demand some some action and some justice or even just not to forget. Sonali, let me start with you on that. It's it's very scattered. It's very individual driven, small initiatives. I know one magazine, uh, you know, collected uh, uh, some profiles of people who had passed away, um, but I don't see anything uh, significant. Um, individual uh, individuals who have lost, like I have friends who have lost their loved ones, um, even within uh, close circles of friends or family, uh, there isn't much collective grieving. Uh, yes, Zoom, it's just in the immediate aftermath, uh, you know, in middle class, upper middle class families, there is, there is a Zoom call, people attend, there, are, there, is, there is eulogy, um, but... Uh, you know, beyond a month or three months, uh, uh, things just seem to, you know, um, people don't talk about it, at least not that I'm familiar with. Of course, India is very diverse. Uh, right. Practices will vary uh, from place to place. So I'm not aware of any collective uh, mem memorialization of the kind that you're talking about. Yeah. So, um, you know, when you talked about Indian culture, about uh, um, giving uh, or, you know, keeping people who have passed away in memories, I think it's a very individual approach or a family approach rather mm. than at the level of the society or at the level of the nation. Uh, yeah, India is a very hero worshipping kind of nation. So uh, it, it shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone that India has the largest statue in the world but also the highest levels of malnutrition in children yeah so we we have one of the tallest one of no it's the tallest statue in the world right of Sardar Vallabhbhai Patel we have uh, we recently inaugurated the memorial for all the soldiers of uh, Indian armed forces that have been martyred in the various wars since world war one and uh, there, there, there is always this, whenever it comes to memorialization, it's always political memorialization, you know, rather than people, for example, who passed away in the Spanish flu or people who passed away during the pandemic or people who passed away natural disasters. For example, India has had a history of lots of disasters, tsunamis, earthquakes, but we never had a memorial uh, for them. So I think uh, India never had a culture of memorializing the, uh, you know, the trauma that the societies have suffered because of diseases or disasters. Uh, but it's always a political, uh, you know, agenda most of the times. Um, and it came as a big surprise to me this time, you know, in uh, the COVID times that um, 
there there has been no attempt at doing it you know this though this is the biggest tragedy that we had in our um, in our known history and i'm very surprised that the indian film industry did not make a movie on it you know which makes a movie on every kind of tragedy and the you know, biggest uh, movie making industry in the world which happens to be the indian film industry has not made a single movie on it so somehow you know as a society we have mm. decided to forget about it and move on i don't know if it's a defense mechanism which our society has used but this is what we are seeing what an interesting observation and for filmmakers who are listening uh you need to take up aksa's challenge there because there there are good pandemic films from india but uh you haven't seen anything anything in around covid i I'm, i'm fascinated by that and you know south korea has a tremendous um pandemic film a tremendous film industry and a tremendous mm. pandemic film industry it's also sort of crosses over with their zombie film industry which is beyond the <laughs> beyond this conversation today <laughs> um but i haven't seen it dealt with in film yet here either um mm. i'm hopeful for that i really like that because i think that will be one of the ways that art can break through some of these structural dog jams that you've both been talking about here today where the structures to seem immovable or almost reactionary turn in on themselves Mm-hmm. art is one way we're we're almost up on time um i did want to come back you know um aksa last time we talked um you spoke so honestly and movingly about the um the challenge and struggle for public health among the lgbtq community that you're active with and in india more generally and i wonder if you can just give us an update there you talked about difficulty in receiving treatment and then also sort of broader sort of political difficulties in the time of covid and this reactionary moment how have things been in the community that you're active with along those lines yeah so i um, recently interacted with the um, um trans community members from bhopal which is a city in central india and uh, you know while we were talking about the experiences during the covid times uh one person mentioned that she hadn't received uh, any dose of the vaccine yet and when we explored that further you know because that was surprising because we assume that every adult in india has now you know gotten vaccinated and uh, she very succinctly mentioned this that she does not trust the indian healthcare system or she does not trust the medical system in general and the reason for that is the kind of historical abuse that the medical system has done of the queer community and especially of the trans persons as a result of which uh, you know unless it's a life threatening condition uh, the uh, trans folks do not want to visit the public healthcare system so um uh, i have heard of a lot of uh, tragedies that have unfolded within the trans community um with people passing away with um, um on account of covid with people um, you know having uh, received abuse during their management of covid either in the form of testing or admissions or other things and things uh, it seems that things uh, you know haven't moved things haven't changed for the queer community in the past two years um, since the pandemic broke out um, but uh, you know the community is quite resilient the queer community and especially when it comes to the trans community and from the socio ethnic groups 
what we call as the hijra or the kinnar community in india it's quite resilient and um, it's it's very heartening to see that resilience only increase during these last two years in terms of the community members supporting each other in terms of community members you know creating more avenues uh, for pursuing healthcare for themselves in the form of um, you know having identified another doctor from a public health care setup set to whom whom they can go so it's uh, there there are these mixed stories you know i get to see so there are the stories of losses but also there are the stories of extreme resilience within the community sonali i just want to give you a chance to comment on that and thank you for that uh, i think very honest description of what's uh, you know it feels like you know the last time we talked it's kind of small steps uh and then some setbacks and then some continuing small steps but i come back to the story that you shared with us a few moments ago about the student the trans student who came to you and spoke i mean that's that's one story that's a huge step right and yeah. and and telling that story widely is um is important and i'm really glad that you told it to us here so nali just to give you i'm thinking to we'll give you the last word as we're wrapping up here Yeah I just want to build on what Aksa said about resilience I think the thing that happens in disasters is that networks and connections which would never have happened otherwise emerge and I think uh, you know at least for me I probably now know at least 300 people who I would have never been in touch with and I think therein I think these people to people connections that evolve at a time of crisis I I think these are a great asset um and uh, you know these help us as we move forward and can be a uh, you know a bulwark against you know the systemic oppression and the structural failures uh, you know that are probably harder to fix i'm really happy that we can finish our conversation on that hopeful note and and just to say personally i've enjoyed the opportunity to learn from both of you in in that regard and it's exactly exactly as you said i I might have encountered you both in a news article or something like that but have the chance to speak with you both individually and now together would not have happened and so the I think that's a really important insight about disaster as a moment um to find your people <laughs> and to build those connections that can then go go onward and I and I think they will let me just remind folks that you've been listening to covid calls and this is part of the special covid calls collection of discussions restoring memory as we're leading towards the launch of the covid calls digital archive and i want to invite you to come back for the next episode of covid calls which starts in just 10 minutes and i'll be talking to nurse cassie alexander the author of year of the nurse and she's a fantastic conversation so please do come back for that and let me thank my wonderful guests aksa shake and snali fade you're both inspirational and um thanks for taking the time uh to talk with me today and to share your insights with our audience thank you so much thank you thanks scott we'll see you next time on covid calls mm-hmm.